We are continuing our series uh, that I've called Who, going over some smaller characters in the Bible. And uh, we're in the Gospels now. We have two more. Tonight is uh, this mysterious father who brings his son to, be Je- her son to Jesus to be healed. And then next week, uh, Pastor Doug will be with us and he'll be teaching on Pilate's wife, um, which is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so tonight we're in Mark chapter 9, and uh, let's just go ahead and start with reading the passage, and then we'll uh, dig into this, this man we're going to look at, this father. Uh, and so please uh, join me, if you will. It'll be on the screen, but as well in the uh, text in front of you. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground and he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And so they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you could do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, the disciples had asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can only this kind can come out only by prayer. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we are in Mark chapter 9. Uh, If you look around and look at the passage just beforehand, Jesus was just on the mountain with Moses and Elijah in the Transfiguration. He's come down from the mountain, and, and if you're familiar with that, he, he goes up to the mountain, and the disciples, James and John, see, or John and Peter, excuse me, see Elijah and Moses with him and worshiping, and then they're gone, and Jesus comes down and tells them, hey, you know, don't tell everyone about this just yet. And, and, and when they come down from the mountain in verses 14 and through 16, the crowds are waiting for them. They're waiting for a chance to see Jesus, to hear Jesus, maybe witness a miracle. You know, as we know, Jesus, wherever he went, sort of created a stir. Jesus did wonderful things. Jesus healed people. Jesus did miraculous things. But as we learned here, there's a problem. A father has brought his son to be healed by the disciples. A father has brought his son who, who has this horrible infirmity of whatever it was, this, whether it was a possession or whether it was a sickness. People argue over that stuff all the time. We're not going to argue that. What we're going to talk about is this father bringing his son to the disciples to be healed. And they couldn't do it, it says. There's a problem. 
This father bringing, if any parent here knows, their most beloved possession to try and do something for him. His child, whom he loves dearly, hoping for a miracle. And he's already asked the disciples, like we said, but to, to no avail. We don't know for sure, but it's safe to assume as we get into this and as we talk about some other passages, there was some lacking faith. There was some measure of faith that was lacking among the disciples when they tried to cast out this demon, when they tried to heal this boy. We know in the book of Acts that the disciples go on to do great things, but this is before the Holy Spirit. This is before Christ leaves them, and they are still lacking. If you look back, just if you want to make a note, in Mark chapter 6, is where Jesus actually gives them authority. In Mark chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus gives them the authority to cast out demons. And so we know they had the ability, but something was going on. Something was different. And when this man comes to Jesus, I think it's really interesting. He says, I asked your disciples to do it, but they couldn't. And Jesus doesn't talk about the disciples. Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, you know, let me do this. He says something that seems a bit cynical for Jesus. If you look at verse 19, he says, oh, you unbelieving generation. Now, maybe he was talking about the disciples. Maybe he was talking about the people in general. Maybe he was just sort of fed up with people and their lack of faith. I think about this, and I think about it comparing it to where he just came from. Remember, he just came from the mountain being transfigured with Moses and Elijah. He was just in some sort of, I can't totally understand it, but from what I understand, a heavenly communion with these two great men of faith, being encouraged, being nurtured. And then he goes down, and these people are wondering, why can't we do this thing? He says, oh, oh, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? He goes from this wonderful, edifying experience to someone saying, hey, Jesus, help, um, we can't figure it out. Like, guys, what's going on? And we must remember when we see Jesus like this, and we see Jesus in these weird states. You know, I don't know about you, but I always think about this with Holy Week when he goes into the temple courts and starts flipping over the tables and gets really angry. I always wonder, how did Jesus get like that? How did he get so riled up? Why did he care so much? Why wasn't he more patient? Well, first of all, he was very patient. But second of all, I, I, it always helps for me to remember that this world was not Jesus' home. This world was not the home he was used to. See, Jesus has something that no human since Adam and Eve had ever had. Perfect communion with God. And when he saw this world and he saw the struggle and the unbelief of this world, he said, how long do I have to put up with this? I want to go home. I want to go home to be with God. I once heard a pastor say that, you know, what's so amazing about Jesus is that he had this communion with God, that we always think that Jesus had some willpower we don't have, right? That the reason Jesus didn't sin was just because he was better than us. Well, yes, Jesus was better than us. But this pastor said, have you ever thought that maybe he knew what it was like to be with God. And when he saw the sin of the world, he said, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it to go down and do that because I am made to be in communion with God. We don't know what that's like yet. It's difficult for us to think about that. What would it be like to be hanging out with Moses and Elijah? <laughs> what would it be like to be in a place so holy that it says that he, they're basically glowing? 
The disciples, the only way they could describe it, the only way the gospel writer of Mark could describe it, that his clothes were dazzling white, whiter than you could ever wash them. That's, that's the way he describes it. This world was not Jesus' home. And he comes down from the mountain in this great experience and communion with God to unbelief. He knew the feeling of fulfillment in an intimate relationship with his Lord. And so likewise, we must try as believers, as those who have been born again, to remember this world is not our home. We try so hard to make it our home, don't we? We try so hard to control it and have everything just right and everything just how we want it, but it's not our home. It's only for a time. It's only for a season. Which is why our number one priority should be to bring the kingdom of God to earth so that we can experience a little bit here and now. This is why Jesus said, Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all the other stuff will be added unto you. We must remember this is not our home. And so in verse 20 and 22, he says, Tell me what happened. Tell me, how long has this been happening? What's going on with this boy? And he says, well, it's been happening for a long time, from childhood. It's often tried to throw him into the fire or the water to kill him. But if you couldn't do anything, that'd be great. How often do we go to God like that? You know, God, I don't know if it's in your plan. I don't know if it's in your will. But if you could, what does Jesus say when the, when the Father says, if you could? He repeats him. He says, if you can? Are you serious? Oh, you faithless generation, you unbelieving generation. See, Jesus is pretty level-headed usually. He's pretty calm, but this is one of those moments where I think he just gets really discouraged. And he sees this man and says, if I can? Do you really have no idea who I am yet? And I think about us today here and when we pray and we say things like, well, Jesus, if it's in your will, well, Jesus, if you can, well, if you would. And Jesus says and looks at us, if, what do you mean? What are you doing on Sundays? Why are you going to church? Do you still not know who I am? Do you still not know that I'm the God of the universe? I want to have a little side note about this, about prayer. Sometimes I'm very guilty of this. I take prayer far too lightly. Sometimes I think as Christians, we take prayer far too lightly. And we treat God as the genie in the bottle, don't we? And when we need something, we go to God and we say, okay, hopefully I have enough saved up. Hopefully I haven't used all my wishes. Maybe he'll hear me. Maybe he'll answer me. Sometimes I think we take prayer too lightly. Have you ever thought about what prayer actually is? I mean, really, just basically, we as creation have been given the gift to talk to the creator of the universe. And we talk to the creator of the universe seeking an answer and seeking help, seeking that a being so powerful, he created the world by speaking, not working, not building. It didn't take him all this time to put it all together. He simply spoke and the world existed. We go to this being with all of our petitions and all of our desires. On the one hand, it's a huge blessing, and it's a huge comfort, but on the other hand, it terrifies me. I think it should prayer should, we should have a little bit of terror when it comes to prayer. We should have a little bit of fear. We are asking the God of the universe to come into our life and affect it and to change it, to get his hands dirty with us and get to work with us. Prayer is a big thing. 
Many of us have heard of St. Augustine or Augustine. He said that prayer is not bringing God near to us. For God is already nearer to us than we are to ourselves. Prayer is to make us aware of the nearness of the God of the universe. So the point of prayer is not to bring God to our life. God is already here. God is already working. God is already at work with us. The point of prayer is for us to open our eyes and to see it. It's a little scary. What is this God doing? What is this God up to? It's a big thought. And when I see this story, I see this father. And even though he means well, he says, if. And, and I kind of wonder, is there ever an appropriate time to use the word if in a prayer? I mean, I'm sure there is, and I'm sure there's something I'm not thinking of. But when we think about what prayer really is, I want to encourage you to think about it with the weightiness that it deserves, with the depth that it deserves. I once heard a pastor give a whole sermon on the word just in prayer. I just want to thank you, God. I just want to ask you. I just, and he got so mad and he said, stop minimizing prayer. Be confident. Be upright. Say, Lord, I want you to do this. Lord, I desire this. Lord, heal my son. Not if. Lord, heal my son. What if we were more bold in our prayer lives? What if we prayed for healing? Not healing if it's in God's will, but actual healing. What if we prayed for peace? Not, well, it's maybe if God... No, what if we actually prayed for peace and reconciliation in our relationships? With full confidence that what we desire of our heart is what God desires. And that if what our heart doesn't want, God would change it in our hearts. Not that we ask God to do something He doesn't want to do or it's not in His plan, but that God would actually change our hearts talked about this last week with Psalm 139. How does that psalm end? It's a terrifying prayer. Lord, search me and know me. See if there's any wicked way in me. That prayer is terrifying. It's telling the Lord of the, the God of the universe, hey, come into my heart, dig around, get in there real deep, and tell me if I need to fix anything. Who among us is brave enough to pray that prayer? If you look at our Old Testament reading, these are powerful prayers to God. Psalm 146. Prayer is, prayer is powerful. We should train ourselves to pray, train ourselves to care for the things God cares about. I say all of that only because when I see this passage, I can, I'm convicted myself. When I read this passage, I realize I don't pray enough. And not only do I not pray enough because I'm supposed to, but I don't pray with the confidence that Jesus asks. I don't always pray with the assurance that God's will will be done. And when I read this passage, I'm convicted. And I wanted to share that with you. I wanted to share my own struggles with you. That I take prayer far too lightly. So, back to the story. Jesus says this. He says, you unbelieving generation. Jesus says, everything is possible for one who believes. And then in verse 24, this father, it clicks. He gets it. He says, it says, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do. I believe. Help me overcome my belief. What a great prayer. Lord, help my unbelief. He's praying to make himself a better prayer. <laughs> 
What an honest prayer. And the first thing I thought about when I, when I read this and, and was studying this is I thought, sorry, I need to have this tattooed backwards on my forehead. Every single time I wake up in the morning, I need to like look in the mirror, wash my face, and see a prayer that says, Lord, help my unbelief. And then I realized instead of a tattoo, I could probably just write it on my mirror. But, so maybe you should do that instead. What a great prayer, though. Lord, help my unbelief. And then to begin praying for what the Lord has put on your heart. Lord, help my unbelief, but I want to pray for healing. Lord, help my unbelief. I want to pray for this person that I struggle to believe can actually change. Lord, help my unbelief. I struggle to believe with whatever. Lord, help my unbelief. And then in the last four verses of the story, we see Jesus indeed does heal this boy. Indeed does answer the request of the Father. And the disciples ask him, Jesus, why, why couldn't we do it? And he says, this kind can only come out by prayer. Some translations say by prayer and fasting. And I don't want to go too far into this, um, but when we talk about what Jesus is saying here about the levels of faith, we know that prayer requires faith. I don't want to go into the, the, the theology of whether or not our prayers affect God or Calvinism versus Arminianism or all of these different things. That's not what we're here to talk about. You know, in the, in the epistle of James, chapter 5, verse 16, he tells us, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I don't know exactly to what level our faith affects God's will or vice versa. It's a bigger question, I think, for another time. But when I see this passage and I see this man, I'm inspired. I'm inspired by a father who did not have the faith he ought to have had, but he recognizes it. See the power in that? There are often times we fall short, but how often do we try to cover it up? How often do we try to pretend or, or, or we, we, we try to point the light on something that we're really good at? And so we cover up what we're bad at by saying, yes, but God, look at all of these wonderful ways I'm serving. Forget about this sin or this unbelief, but look at all these wonderful things I'm doing. This father immediately said, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I see my struggle. I see what I'm bad at. I think this passage tells us a lot about Jesus and ourselves, how we approach God and also how we pray for other people. When we pray for other people, we must realize that Jesus has the same desires that we have when we pray for someone, we, love, we know God loves them. Remember last week when we talked about Jesus' love for Nazareth, or Lazarus? When we talked about Jesus' love for Lazarus, we see him weeping, we see him mourning, we see him sharing the same sadness as his family. And we talked about the strength of being willing to go to Jesus, whether we're Mary, whether we're Martha, wherever we're at, just go to Jesus. Tonight I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit scarier. I'm going to ask you to take other people to Jesus. When you pray, take other people to Jesus with confidence. Immediately again, I'm convicted of this, and I think of my extended family and my family. Much of my family does not know Jesus. And when I talk to my family, you know what they ask me? You still doing the church thing? <laughs> they don't even know what I do. 
Well, you hang out with kids, right? Well, yeah, sometimes, but then I teach the Bible and I do other things. So, so how do you, it, 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 they just don't even understand. And I confess, I don't take them to Jesus. I don't ask that Jesus would change their lives. I ignore it. Take your loved ones to Jesus. Take the sick, the hurting, the lonely. You know, I am not what many people would consider to be a charismatic individual. Oftentimes, I'd rather stay seated while worship, as I mentioned before, than stand up and raise my hands. Oftentimes in prayer, I would rather pray in my heart and in silence and in quiet than out loud and for specific things. And I've shared a little bit about this story before, I think. It's hard to remember, but I want to share with you when I started to think about prayer a little differently. I was 23 years old, and I was in my first full-time youth ministry job. And uh, before you feel uh, too bad for me, let me just preface it that I was in Hawaii, and so life was okay. I always joke that the Lord took me through the hardest time of my life in one of the most beautiful places on earth, so I can't really complain. But I was 23 years old, and I got a, a phone call that my mentor and our, my boss uh, was diagnosed with terminal leukemia on a Monday. And so he would always teach on Friday night, which was sort of the contemporary service at our church, and, and we didn't have a high school pastor at the time, and so as the junior high pastor, I was next up. And the senior pastor was already gone that weekend, and so I would have to preach on Friday night, and then two sermons on Sunday to a total of about 1,700 people between three services. I'd never preached before, just to like youth. And then on that Tuesday, we had been waiting to hear back. My mom, I grew up in a single parent home, but my mom got remarried when I was 18 to a wonderful man. He's a stepfather, great, great guy. Also found out that he was diagnosed with very serious cancer the next day. And then I had to preach that Friday night. And I remember asking my mentor, his name was Kit Lauer. I said, Kit, what in the world do I teach on before he goes to chemotherapy? And he said, teach on what you know. And I said, okay, I'm going to teach on being afraid because I'm terrified of what's going to happen. And when we prayed after that meeting, I prayed a prayer. And I said, you know, Lord, if it's in your will, fix these situations. And he stopped me in the middle of the prayer and grabbed my arm and said, don't you dare pray if it's in God's will. You pray for my healing. He said, I'm going to stop you right there. He said, you need to pray for my healing. And he said, for your father, you need to pray for his healing. You need to pray with confidence and believe. And I was taken back. I was like, I thought I was doing a good thing. I thought I was doing this right. And it's amazing how through tragedy, the Lord started to reveal to me how he wants me to pray. I confess that Kit, after years, or after months and months of fighting, went home to be with the Lord. But my dad's still around 10 years later, healthy and happy, still sputtering around Hawaii. And what's amazing is it was a dark time in my life, but much like this father, think about what it was like for him to have a child with this sickness. Think about what it was like for this father to be struggling through this, trying to find a way to get his son better. And he goes to Jesus and says, well, if you can, and Jesus says, what's wrong with you? He says, you're right. Help my unbelief. And so immediately I began to understand just a little bit more how God wants me to pray. As I confessed, I'm still not a great prayer. I'm not the person who's going to lay his hands on a stranger who's hurt and pray for healing. And, and, and it's, I'm trying. 
But what I do know is that praying with confidence and with faith has strengthened my faith in other areas of life. When I pray for confidence and I pray for strength in one area, I find that other areas are affected. As Augustine said, when we pray, we open our eyes to what God is doing and what God's already doing in our life. And when we pray for one thing, maybe we see God in another area of life. Maybe we see what God has been doing over here that we've never noticed before. It has created a prayer life in me that is more active, more alive, more vibrant. And I try to make it more and more so. And if I'm completely honest, it's made me more aware of the presence of God in my everyday life just by praying. Yeah, I still pray for my family all the time. I know, I pray that they would know the truth, and I'm praying for strength in that. I'm praying for God to help my unbelief that they'll ever come to know Jesus. Whatever it is, take your brothers and sisters to Jesus. Take the people at your work to Jesus. Take the people you can't stand to Jesus. And go to Jesus with confidence and with honesty. And if you struggle and if you don't want to, then pray for your unbelief. Because that person you can't stand, God loves them just as much, if not more, than you. Because they are a lost sheep. And he desires that they come home. I read this passage and I wonder what Jesus might say about our current generation. To a group of people who was in their schedule on the day to pray all the time, he says, you unbelieving generation. What would he say to us? I pray that we would learn how big God is from this and go to him and take the people in our lives to him. God is big. And our attitude in going to God in prayer must reflect our belief in his power and goodness to answer prayer. Yes, it's a little bit scary talking to the God of the universe. But we also understand how much he loves us and that the people we bring to him, he loves so much. And so we go with confidence and assurance in the promises of God. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you. I thank you for this father. Lord, I thank you for his honesty. Lord, I pray and confess now that I have unbelief permeating my heart. There are many things I struggle with, Lord, with cynicism, with unbelief, with doubt. Father, I pray for my unbelief. Lord, help all of us with our unbelief. Father, when we bring people before you in prayer, let us bring them with confidence and assurance that you are our God, that your mercies indeed are new every morning, and that we are your children whom you love. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this Father. And I thank you for what you did in his life and in the life of his Son. May we do the same in boldness and in confidence, knowing that we are not home yet, but that one day we will be. And we eagerly await that day, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.